Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Tonight, the book of Revelation, session 39. This session is entitled, The Increase of Martyrdom. Now, you think... That is not a very user-friendly title. That is a uh, kind of a, a really difficult subject. Well, here, let me just tell you what uh, I am in the process of grappling with, and I want to invite you into the same painful grapple, and that is, if the Bible says it, I want it. If the Bible talks about it, I want to understand it. I don't want to negate something in the Word because it's difficult or because it's new or because I don't like it in my flesh. Now, uh, I want to have the wisdom that the Word of God says. I want to have the understanding that the Bible speaks about. And so if this, the uh, subject is difficult, like martyrdom, I want to have a biblical revelation of what that is, what that sh- what's, is going to look like, why it's going to happen, as opposed to an American version of the understanding of martyrdom. And I can just tell you, as Americans, we like it fast, we like it fresh, we like it cheap, and we like it with zero effort. And that's just not how the kingdom of God operates. And so it makes sense that when we say the word martyrdom, as Americans, we go, change the subject. But what I want to do is I want to know what the Bible has to say about it so that we can rightly interpret it and specifically understand what the subject of martyrdom looks like in the book of Revelation. Because if we are living in the generation that's going to see the Lord's return, we are living in the generation that's going to see the most increased amount of martyrdom in human history. And it would be Uh, It would be poor of me as a shepherd to not help prepare us for the future. And so uh, that's we're going to talk about this tonight. Now, I want to start actually with one step back. Let's not talk about martyrdom, which is kind of the ultimate in suffering. Let's talk about the doctrine of suffering for a minute. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Suffering is a biblical part of Christianity. Now, there are streams and there are individuals and people, and maybe you even grew up in a, a, a context that wants to downplay suffering, say it's not for Christians, that that has no place in life. That's inaccurate, according to our, our Bibles. The Bible says that there is a place for suffering. Just as a starting point, because we're talking about the book of Revelation, John is writing the book of Revelation from a prison island. So the very context of the book of Revelation is John, in a form of prison, writing us the book of Revelation while being in the context of suffering. If you're in prison, you are suffering. Now, there are various prisons and various versions of suffering, but there's no prison that is happy, happy, joy, joy. I mean, it's, that is a bad place to find yourself if you are in prison. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom, I, your companion in the suffering, your companion in the kingdom and your companion in the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. These things belong to us in Jesus. Suffering, the kingdom, and patient endurance. These are ours in Christ. He says, I'm your companion. He says, I get that. I'm that too. He says, I was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's describing in one phrase, I was on the prison island. It was a a, a, a penitentiary island of Rome. It was a a small island, about four or five, six square miles, and it was rocky, didn't have a lot going for it, and it was a a prison settlement. It's where they put all the prisoners that were perhaps maybe the the least violent uh, uh, prisoners. They put them on this island, and John is writing to his audience, and he says, 
I was in prison, and I was writing you this message. New Testament and Christianity includes suffering. I gave you a bunch of verses there. If you're looking at part B on page one, you can see a bunch of verses that talk about the normalness of suffering as a concept in the New Testament, not as a, if you're suffering, you must be doing something wrong, but if you're suffering, there's all kinds of suffering that's actually the product of doing a lot of things right. And that's a, uh, a subject that maybe we don't like, but it doesn't, us not liking it doesn't make it go away. That ostrich can keep its head in the dirt all day long. The lion's still coming. And so uh, I would rather be aware of what the New Testament says. So I gave you a couple of verses there. I want to keep moving, though, for the sake of time. <clears throat> Suffering is going to come to us in the West as well. And that's a part that is, I mean, to say the statement, I don't know that anybody would straight up disagree but when you start talking about a specific type of suffering happening to you, <laughs> to your family, your neighbor, your friend, that's where our doctrine all of a sudden puts up a defense shield. It's like suffering can happen even in America so long as it happens to the other guy. And suffering is a part of Christianity and it's coming. Look at this, uh, a couple of verses here in Isaiah chapter 24 describing the final generation. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth, the whole earth. And devastate it. He'll ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for people. All joy turns to gloom. All gaiety is banished from the earth. There's a time coming where the difficulties will be so intense, where suffering will be so real, it's described as joy gone, gaiety banished from the earth. Jesus said it this way. Let's just quote Jesus. Matthew 24, 21 and Jesus is talking to his disciples, by the way, not to lost people, okay? The Bible was written for the saved, not the unsaved mostly. The unsaved, the book, the truths are real for them, but they won't apply them until they give their lives to Jesus, okay? Not a lot of lost people out there digging into the Bible and trying to apply it, okay? Matthew 24, 21 says this, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. This is Jesus talking to his disciples about the coming difficulty, suffering. I mean, it's, he's not using the word suffering here, but find me a version of planet Earth out of Matthew 24, 21 that doesn't have lots of suffering in it. I mean, this is clearly Jesus giving us the context. The biblical presentation of suffering is different than our flesh's defense mechanism against suffering. We want to get as far away from it as we can. We don't want anything to do with it. And we've even got some uh, doctrines in our culture that say if you're suffering, you must be doing something wrong. We've got a bunch of Job's friends uh, you know, telling us that if anything bad's happened in our life, it must be because we did something stupid. And you can definitely suffer for doing something stupid. So that's definitely on the list. But you could be doing great. You could be following Jesus. Jesus suffered. Here we have right here. The call to share in Jesus' sufferings. I just I want to give us a context. If you've never heard this, the phrase, the doctrine of suffering, that's something you want to uh, not be so super new to. That's a concept in the Bible that's not one or five verses. It's 500 verses. And it's a doctrine that's a clear part of what it means to follow God. Look at this, Philippians 1.29. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ... Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. It has been granted to you. It's been a gift to you. It's been granted to you, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. 
man, it, it's hard to get rid of that Bible verse. It says it really clear. Well, if you needed another one, Philippians 3.10, just a couple chapters later, I want to know Christ, yes, and to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I want to know, I want to fellowship with him in all things, including his sufferings. That's intense. This is Paul who writes all the other verses that we like. He wrote this one too. And this is an intense verse. Perspective, however, is essential. Look at Romans 8, 18. This is important for us to understand so that we can navigate suffering rightly instead of just trying to get through it so that it's over. Can we just get this bad day over with already? We're actually supposed to embrace it and think upon eternity. Paul says this in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings, they're present, they're real, they're suffering, they're bad. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Suffering, if you manage it rightly, produces fruit of the Holy Spirit in your soul. If you navigate suffering rightly, it produces the fruit of the Spirit. Now I'll tell you this, if you navigate it wrongly, it produces the fruit of death. Suffering produces big fruit. (laughs) You get to pick. It's either going to be the fruit of the Spirit or it's going to be the fruit of the flesh. And you don't want that fruit. Anger, resentment, bitterness, you know, uh, denial, you know, aggression. These are the fruits of the flesh and it's the same circumstance that can also produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You get to pick. I just want to be a good fruit guy. And if suffering's part of the package, I want to look at my suffering moments And I want to find a way to get perspective from heaven. And then I want to respond rightly so that they produce what they were intended to produce in me instead of what the enemy desires to produce in me. And I am telling you, your suffering is an on-ramp to heaven or hell. And it it is not an on-ramp to gray zone. Suffering is so intense, it's black and white. Suffering is so intense, it's heaven or hell. And you decide what it is that you're, you're producing in you in the midst of suffering, and suffering is part of the package. All right, I'm going to keep going. The increase of martyrdom in the last days. So now that we've got the concept that suffering isn't the devil, at least not all the time, I don't even know if I'd say most of the time. I just, I've seen enough times where the Lord was doing stuff in my life and the devil was not involved, or he was an afterthought. It's like, Jesus, you... You did that to me. Like, well, but I mean, your father, man, you said, take this cup from me. And your father said, no. And your father said, get up on the cross, son. Dang, what kind of family did I get into? This is, <laughs> this is intense. This is so intense. So now that we got that concept that suffering is part of the deal, suffering at level 1, 10, 20, and 100, We'll call 100 martyrdom, okay? But it's all part of the concept of suffering. So, Matthew 24, 9 through 10, Jesus said it this way. You're going to be handed over, persecuted, and put to death. Oh, dang. And this is an end time passage. This is Matthew 24. It's all about the end of the age. He's describing what's going to happen to the church across the planet, not the church in Jerusalem only, because he says this. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. All the nations. They're all going to hate you. Why? Because of me. Why? Because light is going to get so light in the midst of darkness getting so dark. 
Part of what we're witnessing right now, real time, turn on the television, is dark getting darker, and light has two choices, snuff out or burn bright. The brighter the light is in the darkness, the more that light will be hated. It's happening right now. There's churches in California currently right now being sued by their counties because they're open, because they're being the church. There are counties suing churches. Light is getting lighter. Dark is getting darker. This is going to come to a head in ways that are not pretty. And in the midst of all that, here's what Jesus said at that time. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and they will betray and hate each other. They'll actually turn each other in to be persecuted, to be martyred, to, to suffer. He said, this is the future because what's going to happen is the light is going to get brighter when the light chooses. Remember, heaven and hell, suffering, you get to choose the fruit. Do you want the fruit of death in you or do you want the fruit of, of Christ in you? There are going to be those that their love grows cold because of the wickedness. They're going to go, it's not worth the fight. I'm just going to give in. But they're not giving into that situation. They're giving into hell, growing in them like a poison. And as they do, they will turn and betray and hate each other, and they will leave the faith of Jesus. They loved him, and now they won't love him anymore. It won't happen overnight. It will happen one decision at a time. I want to tell you, you want to be real careful. Ah, I'm just going to hold on to that bitterness. It's okay if I just don't deal with this unforgiveness, with this sin, with this. It's okay. It's not a big deal. I'm telling you right now, you are watering a hell tree in your soul. You're watering it, and it will grow up. And as it grows, those roots grab a hold of your heart and latch on. It is a matter of heaven and hell. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who are not offended on account of me. Jesus was the slain lamb. Jesus told us. This is Jesus helping us to understand if you walk with me, you're going to be treated like me and like my guys, the guys of old, the prophets, the righteous ones. He says this in Matthew 5. This is Sermon on the Mount Christianity, basic Christianity 101, Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are you when people insult you. Good job. And persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, not because you were being stupid. Don't get persecuted because you're stupid and then call it Jesus because that was just you being stupid. Get persecuted because you did something for Jesus. And then when you're persecuted, it's legitimate. He says, blessed are you when they insult you because of me, not because they insult you because you're a bad driver. That doesn't count. Okay? Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is Jesus telling us persecution, even ending in martyrdom, is part of the package of what it means to stay faithful to him. You want to go on a journey in your soul of asking yourself the question, you don't even have to let anybody in on the early phases of the conversation. Just ask yourself and Jesus, would I be willing to die for you? Die, 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 dead, blah, in the grave. Would I be willing to die for you? And if your answer's no, that's not the end of the world. It's the beginning of a conversation you want to continue to go on. Why, Jesus, why am I not willing? Why would I not be willing to give up my life? What? what? Then, then, if you can get to the point where you are willing to say, yes, I'm willing to die for you, then ask a different question that's much harder. Am I willing to live for you? Am I willing to live in a way that's like a dead man walking? <laughs> Am I willing to live in a way that it could cost me again and again and again? I mean, if you die, it's over and you graduate. If you get beat up every day, 
or your finances get beat up every day, or your family gets beat up every day, or your personal, or your uh, your uh, uh, reputation, or your this or your that gets beat up every day. Are you willing to continue to live for him like a living martyr instead of a dying martyr? You know, those are two different details, and you you want to go on the journey. I want to go now into the book of Revelation because that's our focus tonight. The opening letters of the book. You guys know uh, if you've been in this study or familiar with the book of Revelation a little bit, the chapter two and chapter three are the letters to the seven churches. So here we've got kind of the beginning of the book of Revelation, and Jesus is starting the book off, and he says this, Revelation 2.10, do not be afraid about what you, uh, uh, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Uh-oh, Jesus, I thought everything was going to be great. I signed up for kumbaya, not for suffering. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. This is Jesus giving us, giving us two very interesting thought processes. You're about to suffer. I'm freaking out. Don't be afraid. I'm telling you, I'm with you. It's okay. You don't need to be afraid of that suffering. I am with you. You will actually find fellowship with me in suffering in a way you can't fellowship with me outside of suffering. I will draw near to you in a way you've not known. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. This is Jesus making promises about their future, about their eternity. He's making it really clear, be faithful even to the point of death. Faithful even to the point of death, meaning faithful at every step leading up to death, even if it doesn't end in death. I mean, if death is level 10 bad, What if you have to live at level nine bad for five years? He's like, suffer, but don't be afraid. I'll be with you. I'm still here. I'm still Jesus. I'm still God of the universe. I didn't go anywhere. Don't be afraid of that suffering. Don't turn it away like it's an impossibility or it's something for only those that have messed up in life. Don't be afraid. Don't shy back from it. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. All right? Chapter six. And we're going to look more at chapter six here in a minute, but I want to just introduce it. The martyrs now in the seals. This is now happening in the, in the period uh, of the, the seals being poured out, the beginning of the Great Tribulation period. And the, the martyrs in heaven have this incredible moment with uh, the Father. And just, uh, this is John now writing. He says, I saw under the altar, this is the altar in heaven before the throne. I saw under the altar the souls of those that had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. Martyrs. John sees the martyrs of history under the throne. It's like they're the coals of the altar. That's what's under an altar. You know, it's not a bunch of wheels under there. These are the fiery coals that are keeping the altar burning. He says, these are those that have suffered, or they were slain because of the word of God and the testimony. And they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, Holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. The martyrs in heaven with right doctrine say justice. We want justice. God is a God of justice. This is not a, it's not like the the martyrs in heaven went rogue and started talking crazy talk. Okay? These martyrs are before the throne of God. You don't wind up in the presence of the living creatures and before the throne and have bad theology. All right? These martyrs understand how it works, and they cry out, when do we get justice for the fact that we were martyred? And the response from God is, it's coming. Okay? So this is another significant part of the book of Revelation. 
the martyrs in heaven, this stacked up number of martyrs that have been slain for the name of Jesus, they're crying out for justice and God says, oh, don't you worry, we're getting, we're getting to that. All right, well, moving on, the violence of the Antichrist during the tribulation. So you got the Antichrist, okay? And this is just another part of martyrdom in the book of Revelation. Remember, we're doing this thematically. So we're talking about martyrdom tonight in the book of Revelation. Where do we find it? We find it in the letters. We find it in the seals. Now we find it in the activity of the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 13, 7 through 10. This is the Antichrist is speaking of here. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. Power to conquer the saints. That's bad. Conquer the saints. By the way, the Antichrist can't conquer saints if there aren't saints. So the saints have to be here in order to be conquered. Okay? And it was given authority over every tribe, people, and language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All of them? No. All of them whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he'll be killed. This is describing martyrdom at the end of the age, and it doesn't sound like it's a few. This sounds like this is a significant chunk of the planet, and it is. I mean, we gotta, we've never seen that before. <laughs> There's never been a time in history where a significant chunk of the planet was being martyred for Jesus. Thousands? Even more than that in certain moments, in certain scenes and situations, but a, 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 a percentage, percentage is what I was looking at, a, a percentage of the human population being martyred like a chunk? I mean, that's never happened before. That is going to change everything when that is real time. Revelation 13, 15 says similarly, the second beast is talking about the false prophet. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refuse to worship that image be killed. Guess who won't worship that image? Believers. It says he was given power to kill everybody who wouldn't bow down. Power to kill everybody? Now he's not a he doesn't effectively actualize that capacity. He does not kill everybody, but he's given power to. Everybody that won't worship the beast. He's given power that if he was given just enough time, he could actually see to it that every Christian was martyred. Oh, that's different. That's, that's a very different situation than what we've experienced in the past. This subject of martyrdom is not a small deal and is not a small life impact. This is going to change life as we know it dramatically. Also, the onslaught of the harlot Babylon in the book of Revelation. We'll get to it when we get to chapter 17 and 18, but I'll just give you a sneak preview. The harlot Babylon is the corrupt global system plus but it's the corrupt global system that arises in the decades before the Antichrist. We're watching some of that happen now. What's terrifying is how much martyrdom she gets to accomplish before the Antichrist ever shows up on the scene. The Antichrist is not the biggest threat on the front end. In fact, the Antichrist is going to be so easily identifiable for believers, it's really not really a big concern of mine. The harlot Babylon, however, she's tricksy. She sneaks in. She gives a false premise of humanitarian good. She's preaching a different gospel, but she's littering in the name of Jesus. And she's causing many within the church to turn to wickedness and embrace her evil ways. That's the concept of a harlot. The harlot Babylon is described in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. 
Look about her activity, though. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Next verse, 1824. In her was found the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people, all who had been slaughtered on the earth. The heart of Babylon is responsible for the mass amounts of martyrdom in the generation before the Antichrist arises, in the generation that the Lord returns. Mass amounts of martyrdom. She, uh, he has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Avenged on her the blood of his servants because she was the one killing his servants. Martyrdom. Are we seeing it? So here we have now, all throughout the book of Revelation, this intense reality of the suffering martyrdom. It's real. Revelation 20 verse 4 is one of the promised rewards to the martyrs. You know, God doesn't ever just, you know, tell us to do the right thing and never give us any of the information about why that's a good idea or what he rewards us with. His favorite thing as a good father is to tell us what is right and then tell us how he will reward us if we'll just do what he says. Okay, look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who'd been given authority to judge. Who are these dudes? Who are these guys and gals that have been given authority to judge? Who? I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus. Martyred. That's what that means. In a specific way, but martyred. Head cut off. Do we know any worldwide religions that are doing that these days? Yeah. Martyrdom. At the, because of their testimony for Jesus, their head taken off. That's really intense. It's not even just, it doesn't even just say the martyrs. It says specifically those that were behead. Like that's a whole category of people at the end of the age. I want to say this kindly, soberly. There is a giant number of the body of Christ that is going to be beheaded in the last generation. I don't like that, but that's what our Bible says. And I, I want us preparing for that. Remember the question, will you die for Jesus? Think about the scenario. You know, I, I'm telling you this right now. We talk to our kids about this stuff. And we tell them, like, look, this is what the Bible says is coming. We live in a really crazy hour. I want you thinking about this and talking about this with Jesus. It's not the conversation we have every day, but it's in the mix. Because this is the generation that's going to experience the craziest stuff. We can't treat them like kids. They're, they're, their innocence has been robbed by the hour they're living in. We have got to prepare them for reality, okay? Get them thinking about this and dialoguing with Jesus. And Jesus says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. What a great word to tell a child. Don't be afraid. Dialogue with Jesus. That word is good for adults and it's good for kids too. Who are these? Those are, these are those that had not worshipped the beast or his image. They came to life and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. The reward of martyrdom. The promised role of government in the next age. Think about this for a second. Do you know how government works in this age? We're just a shadow of, of everything that's up top, okay? Life, even marriage is a shadow of the bride of Christ and Jesus. Everything down here is just a shadow. Trees, animals, everything. It's all a shadow. The shadow of government. Here's, here's, what, it, here's what this looks like. You got one person in government leading lots of people, not lots of people in government leading no one. 
I'm just talking about ratios and proportions. Not everyone is going to be a king in the next age. That's not how this works. Not everyone is going to be a regional governor in the next age. Not everyone is going to be, you know, a, a state legislative official, whatever that winds up translating to in Jesus' kingdom. Not everyone is going to have that. That's not how it works. Government, to have significant role of government, is not going to be everybody's reward in heaven. It doesn't work that way. Government requires you've got one over 100, 1,000, a million, a billion. Okay? That's what government is. Martyrdom in the last days guarantees government in the next age. Think about that for a second as the guillotine's coming down. Okay? That's intense, but that's... This is the book of Revelation. These are the words of Jesus. This is the message the Holy Spirit wants a generation that's going to suffer greatly understanding these light and momentary afflictions. Not worth comparing to that which I will inherit if I just stay faithful. Faithfulness is the right thing no matter what generation you're living in. In the last days, the faithfulness factor goes way high, as does the reward. Impact of martyrdom on Christianity. Martyrdom, when it's at this level, and again, the world has never seen anything like this before. When martyrdom is at this level, it refines the church in wholeheartedness. Think about that day where every, where every pocket of Christianity, where every group, every church, every town knows somebody that's been martyred recently. Everybody knows somebody. And you, with fear and trembling, make the decision to go to church that day. With fear and trembling, whether to witness on the street. With fear and trembling, it creates wholehearted passion. You know what it creates? A bride that's made herself ready. That's equally yoked. How wrong would it be for Jesus to return to an unequally yoked bride when he's the one that told us, don't be unequally yoked to people. If you're saved and they're lost, they're off limits. You can't date them. If, if you're walking with Jesus and pursuing him and they're barely dabbling their foot in the pool, it's a terrible idea for you to date them. It's a terrible idea. This is a, he, Jesus is not going to get a bad deal. I promise you he's not going to come back to a bride's like, eh, Father, is that really the best you could do for me? She is going to be fiery hot, and I want to tell you, martyrdom is a significant way that we get there. Okay, It's significant. It's a significant part of it. Many will also fall away because of the pressure. That also gets uh, some of the funny stuff off her face. When martyrdom is a significant pressure, those that are defaming the name of Jesus will either become fiery hot or they'll bail. And they are now no longer part of the bride of Christ. They are no longer part of the bride being prepared and made ready. There will be many that fall away. That was Jesus' words. He said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And then he says, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. That's the verse I just read out of Matthew 24. This is another significant way that martyrdom will affect Christianity. We're going to know people that are in all these boats. We're going to know people that martyrdom caused their, you know, half-heartedness to get on fire. I mean, they were barely going after Jesus a minute ago, and now martyrdom made them go, it's heaven or hell. I'm in. I'm done playing the game. It's also going to cause some to fall away. Holiness will rise. Like the first century church, we're looking at a time where the bride will be walking in such passion and purity. will also be countless millions turning to Jesus because of the brilliance and the beauty of the bride. 
The church walking in her calling, in her fullness, in obedience, in love, will look so attractive, lost people will go, if that's what Jesus is about, I'm in. You'll die for him? I don't know anybody that'll die for anything. Man, you will die for him? Why? What is your beloved so different than another beloved? Who is this? Tell me something, because I don't understand. There will be millions that will give their lives to Jesus because of martyrdom. It's going to change the game. Let's look at the details of the fifth seal here for a couple of minutes, and we'll break up into groups. He opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those that had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told, Wait a little longer. Until the full number of their fellow servants or brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. This is so intense. We're talking about a season of time, part A there on page six, of institutionalized murder. We've never experienced this before. Where the global norm, the norm practice in government of the nations of the earth is murder a Christian. We've never experienced that before. We're entering a time where that will be institutionalized. It's the mark of the beast system. It's all that stuff. But it's, it's institutionalized murder. It's government uh, approved martyrdom of Christians because they won't worship the beast. They won't take the mark. They won't follow the agenda of the day. <coughs> this is really intense. In that context, that's when this is happening, that the martyrs are crying out, how long till you deal with this nonsense? And God gives the most peculiar answer. He says, I will deal with it, but not yet. And you just kind of imagine the martyrs going, well, when? And his answer is, you haven't all died yet. Huh? Yeah, I'm actually waiting for the full number before I wind up my fist and I punch the snot out of the planet. I'm waiting for the number. Listen, I, it, your incense is arising. Your martyrdom, your deaths are arising like incense, like intercession rises like incense. The full number have not reached the, 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 uh, the number. We've not entered into the full number yet. And when that happens, it's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. And that's then when I come fiery hot. That's when the return of Jesus, that's when the bowls of wrath get poured out. They're asking about vengeance. You know what the bowls of wrath are? The answer to the martyr's cry here in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, when the martyrs say, when are you going to avenge our blood? When, when, when? He says, I got these bowls. You guys got to come check them out. Come on, martyrs. Come, come over here. Let me give you a field trip. You see these seven bowls? They're enormous. They're like on fire. There's like lava spilling out of them and blood and poison and stuff. He says, you see those seven? Yeah, those are the scariest things we've ever seen. Soon as we hit the number, I'm dumping them all out on the planet. This is my answer. I will avenge your blood. You can count on it. They cry out for vengeance. They're told to wait. There's a full number. There's a promised moment for justice. <clears throat> it's a calculated number that only the Father knows. The end time martyrs. Though millions would have been martyred by this time, there is a calculated number. Now if all we do is look at the dismal reality of this, of the martyrdom, we miss the whole point. Because God is a God of justice. But do you know that if you commit a small crime, you receive a small penalty. 
you commit a big crime, justice says bigger penalty. God is waiting to give the maximum sentence. And it's actually about justice. It's about justice. You did this. This is what the fruit of your labor deserves, planet Earth. Lost of the world. Those that have turned against my, my people. Those that have martyred my church. There is a full number. Martyrdom's impact on the prayer movement. And then we'll break into groups here. Two minutes. A fiery, hot culture of prayer. When every group of people, every believing community in the earth knows martyrs because they were the mother, the brother, the best friend, the neighbor, every group will know martyrs because martyrdom will no longer be something that doesn't touch us. It will touch everyone. When martyrdom is at that capacity, every group of believers in the earth will be impacted. Life will look very different than it does today. When that is the case, there is going to be such a fiery hot culture of prayer and reliance on the Holy Spirit, such as never happened before. When martyrdom happens at that level, night and day prayer will be effortless. Night and day prayer will be the only thing that makes sense. When there's that level of martyrdom, the people of God will be huddling together and interceding. Oh, Jesus, come quickly. The people of God will be saying, oh, Jesus, we're in agreement with Revelation 6 martyrs, the souls under the altar. Bring justice. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Night and day prayer will, will be a reality in the midst of this. Also, a great resolve to see God move. Nothing like desperation causes the urgency of the church to see God be God. To see God do the God thing. You all know your prayer lives and your life and even the way that you live. When you're in a serious mess of hurting, you make your decisions differently even about your, your, life, your life in God, you pursue at a different level. Because when the fire is out there, you've got to answer that fire with fire. And you need to see God move. It's going to create expectation. It's going to create a move of the Holy Spirit. It's going to create a swirl within the church. The prayer movement is going to catch fire in the midst of this. And also, the church is going to come into complete unity. Do you know what you don't care about when you're in a foxhole? What denomination are you, brother? I'm not real sure we can have fellowship right now. I just saw my best friend get martyred with your best friend. What are you talking about? You know, you make a good point. But really, I'd like to know about your doctrinal points on this particular deal. Nobody's thinking that way. The body of Christ will be brought to unity by the sheer fact of our togetherness in the thing that is most central. We hold to the name of Jesus. It will bring about unity. Jesus isn't going to come back to a disunified fighting bride. We're going to be in unity like woe, and one of the ways we're going to get there is martyrdom. All right, let's break, break into groups. Luke, how many groups we got tonight? Four groups of how many? About eight. All right, and who, who are our leaders tonight, Luke? All right, for those of you who are joining us online, uh, okay, so maybe this John is the first Stokes time is over here. John, hand in the air and move it up. With us. Caitlin's right uh, here in, in the uh, blanket room here. All right, the, good. Andy's uh, in the back and Luke's there. If you guys would, into get into groups of about eight, groups seven, eight, after some period of discussion have each uh, formulated a question, one per group, and the group facilitator is going to ask the question. I'm going to do my best to repeat that question because you won't be able to hear it otherwise, uh, and then uh, do my best to answer. So uh, we'll start here uh, with Caitlin. Uh, what was your question? All right, so seeing that this is coming, the Bible says this is real, what do we do now to be preparing our hearts uh, for what's coming and for that day? 
You know, as we were uh, kind of finishing up, I had a thought process that jumped through my mind that's actually, I think, is the answer to this, at least in addition to what else we talked about in this session. Uh, a number of people began to uh, kind of run across my mind in where they're at with Jesus. And I asked myself the question, if they were asked today for their life for Jesus or to deny him in order to save their life, would they give their life for Jesus or not? And I just, in my mind, I was like, they totally would not. <laughs> I mean, for many of the ones I was thinking of, I was like, I think that's actually very telling of where a person is at in Christ. I think that thought process is very telling. Now, what we want to do is we want to have that conversation go layers and layers deeper. Not just, would I die for you in that moment? But the question of, would I live for you? How, how am I living for you? Here's the, here's the reality. No one is going to die for Jesus if Jesus isn't really, really, really real to them. We don't want to talk about the other person. We want to talk about the you person, the me person. How real are you to me? How real are you to my kids? How real are you to my, my friends? How real are you in the community of believers I'm running with? Are you a religion or a reality? We want the reality of Jesus growing day to day, season to season. Because that reality makes him real and worth it. And so then the question of, would you dot, 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 it doesn't matter how you dot it. It doesn't matter what you fill in the blank. The answer would be yes, because he's real, because he's God, because he's friend, because he's savior, because he's right, because <laughs> he's good. And it's like the reality of God is actually what life is about, the pursuit of the reality of God. And the more real God is to you, the more we obey him, the more we love him, the more we smell like him and look like him. And so um, really the answer of in light of this, how do we get ready? It's, it's the same answer to every other question in the Bible. It's the greatest commandment. We want to grow in love for Jesus. And as we do, then we'll become bulletproof related to martyrdom. You don't actually want to make your life about getting ready for martyrdom. You want to make your life about Jesus, which prepares you for martyrdom. You want to make your life about Jesus, which prepares you to tell the truth when no one's looking. You want to make your life about Jesus so that you'll like love God and love people and do right. And so it's the right answer all the time. But I'll tell you, man, the more real Jesus is, the more the thought process of heaven and hell is real to you and not a game. But what's going to happen to so many is they're going to reach that moment and they will not have been living the decades previous to that moment like Jesus is real. So now in that moment when they're asked, will you die for Jesus? And that's not really the question they're going to be asked most of the time. Most of the time it's, will you worship the Antichrist in order to save your life? Because we're about to kill you and your family, your infant child. We're going to kill right now if you do not worship the Antichrist right now. The thought process is, I don't really know how real that Jesus whole thing was anyway, that whole church thing because it wasn't reality. It wasn't roots growing deeper. We want revelation of Jesus. So let's dedicate our lives to the greatest commandment. We're all going to be okay. So great question. Uh, over here.
<laughs> the impossible question, right? Okay, so the question is, we've got a friend. They're in this boat. We're not really sure where they're at. How do we approach them? How do we have a question? Um, I think you can use me as a scapegoat here pretty easy. Brad brought up this idea. Who's Brad? This weird guy. Saturday night weird guy. But anyway, this guy I heard brought up this question. If I was asked to die for Jesus today, would I do it? Like really, today. And I started thinking about it. It's got me thinking, what would you do? And just ask the friend. Ask the person. You're just talking about a life experience you just had. Ask the person, what would you do? That's not accusational. That's bringing them into your conversation that you're working through. And let them go, you mean die, like physically die? Yeah, I don't, I'm not talking fictitious. I'm not talking about like some, you know, like mythical reality. I'm talking about what if it happened today or tomorrow? What would you say? What would I say? How, how would we respond? I'm working through this. I'm trying to work through this in my own heart. What would you say? And let them start to think about it. Even if they don't answer you, you got them thinking deep. I mean, this might be as about as deep as it goes, and you went, you got real quick with them. You know, so I think that's actually an excellent way to present to their own hearts the level of reality or unreality of Jesus, you know, in their own heart. And, uh, and you did it in a way that wasn't even accusational, it was just crazy Saturday night Brad said something. So anyway, it's bugging me. I want it to bug you too. So great, great question. All right, uh, over here, John, question for your, your group. Yeah, so this, we were talking about the subject of those that are martyred in the last days are promised governmental leadership in the next age. Why is that amazing? Why is that great? I was even overhearing, you know, some of the different groups like, you know, my personality type and really kind of like what I'm after in life, I don't really want to be a leader like that and have to be in charge of all that stuff and stuff. Um, so I'll just say it this way. That's like a person whose natural tendency isn't being nice, refusing niceness as a part of the kingdom is a good idea. It's like, well, I'm just kind of ornery. I don't really know about that whole nice thing. Jesus says governmental leadership is the coolest thing ever. You want it. Now, I'll tell you a little bit more. Governmental leadership, we have a wrong idea. This is a painful thing that you are not going to like me for. Jesus is a man forever. Fully God and fully Jewish human, meaning he can only be in one place at one time. Holy Spirit, everywhere. Jesus the man, one place. How many conversations can Jesus have in a day? in a week, in a year, in a millennium? How many conversations could Jesus have? He cannot have sit-down coffee meetings with every believer. That's not real. That's not real. We have made Jesus our own personal Jesus that, that uh, 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 extracts a thousand Bible verses about who he is and how he operates and what he thinks. Do you know who Jesus is going to have the most interaction with? His cabinet. He's going to have the most interaction. Is he going to interact with everybody at some point? Yeah, but I don't want to be the guy that's like waiting for year 10 million for my coffee date. Like, well, what? he's busy, man. He is the busiest man in the history of ever. 
And he's going to mostly be interacting, the most amount of interaction, the most, with those that are arm in arm leading the nations with him because he's a man, fully God, fully man forever. We need to understand the incarnation was, it, it is the craziest thing that he did to himself. He made himself human indefinitely. He, he has physical form and height. He will never grow to be 30 feet tall Jesus. He is a human forever. Fully God. Fully human. We get the fully God part better than we get the fully man part. That's the reason I'm stressing the fully man. Fully man means you have limitations. <laughs> you can't be everywhere all is Jesus. You know, Jesus in one place, one time having a conversation with whoever's in front of him. Who is that? Those that are in governmental leadership with him will get a lot more FaceTime with Jesus. And it's not even just about FaceTime. It's about shared ministry. Hey, Jesus, had this idea from our last meeting. I want to lead it this way and this. What do you think about that? Oh, that's a good idea. That's a really good idea. You got the spirit of wisdom and revelation resting on you. Yeah. And what if we did it this way too, Brad? Oh, Jesus, that's, yes, that's, that's it. That's what we're going to do. I'll let you know next time you're back in Dallas, I'll, I'll talk to you about that. All right, cool. I mean, we need to recognize the level of partnership is significant. And so when Jesus says this, this has way more to do with proximity than it does. Nobody's going to have a big head in the age to come with a resurrected body and a resurrected mind, and you're in Jesus's governmental leadership. There's nobody haughty. There's zero people with pride. This is not, I am lording it over the nations. And you're like, I don't even want to lord it over the nations. Jesus doesn't want you to lord it over the nations either. That's not what this is about. It's about proximity in partnership. Everybody's going to get to partner with Jesus's plans, but many, 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 many more are going to partner with Jesus's plans through others. <laughs> and it's like, hey, I was talking with Jesus. I want to how do I talk with Jesus? Well, you've got the Holy Spirit. You can talk to him all the time through the Holy Spirit. But if you want a sit-down meeting with him, that doesn't happen every day, all day long to everybody. That's, he's a gover he is the king of kings. He is going to be the king leading the kings. So if there's 256 nations, it's 256 kings. And he's the king of the kings. And they meet and they talk about planet Earth rulership. I mean, it's, this is really intense stuff. All right, great, great question. And Andy. Yeah, so are there more verses that talk about martyrdom related to governmental leadership? There are a lot of verses that talk about the reward of governmental leadership related to activity in this age, one of which is martyrdom. It's not the only. Uh, you know, I'm going to just go ahead and go to Revelation chapter 3 here. All right. Uh, yeah, 3. No, no, end of 2. End of Revelation chapter 2. To him who overcomes. This is talking about those that overcome in the last days in a very specific context. The one who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like poverty. Now, uh, like pottery. Uh, this, this verse is talking about, uh, we don't have time to get into it right now, other specific 
areas of partnership in this age that also promise governmental leadership. So it's not the only way to get governmental leadership is martyrdom. But martyrdom in the last days guarantees governmental leadership, which is so incredible. You just think about how much Jesus esteems that reality. The reality of beheaded for his name in the last generation, that's just so intense. So I'll say it this way. Uh, it would be a fun study for all of you, and there's a ton of verses on this, uh, on the role of governmental leadership. And if you wanted a cheat sheet on the verses, there's a book in the lobby uh, called Life in the Millennium. And, uh, and there's a whole uh, session in there about governmental leadership in the millennium. And there's verses after verses after verses. You could just copy down the verses and then go read them on your own. That's what I'd do. So, all right, uh, worship team or worship leader, you can come on up. So listen, here's what we're going to do in this uh, series as we, as we finish, uh, not finish, as we, as we reboot back into the book of Revelation. Do we have a worship leader? Is that real? Maybe, maybe not. Um, so <clears throat> if we, um, as we're kind of rebooting back into the book of Revelation... Um, uh, I, I want us to get back into this flow. We took a, a season off in order to be able to give ourselves to our prophetic history. I feel like it did the trick. I feel like we got the, the storyline and heard where we've been. And now we want to get back into the, to the main storyline. What's great about what we've done with the, the prophetic history, it helps us see ourselves, the prayer room, and us here, you, me individually, this house of prayer, in the storyline that we're studying here in the book of Revelation. And so that has value in itself. But what we're going to be doing is this same, con, uh, uh, this same setup, same structure in the coming weeks. And we've got, I think it's like 120 sessions slated, maybe 110 sessions slated. And we just did session 39. So this is going to take us another couple of years yet and maybe more uh, to be able to get through it. And the objective here is to have a, a comprehensive uh, understanding of the themes of the book of Revelation uh, so that we can better understand what the hour that we're living in and understand this book. So, and, and lastly, I'll just point this out. Like tonight, you didn't have to be a part of the previous sessions for tonight to make sense because we're talking about a topic instead of, oh, you missed out on chapter 1, verse 6. Now you can't understand chapter 1, verse 7. We're doing it thematically. So that one value point on that is people can jump in at any point and it still has value because we're talking about topic and then go back or choose not to go back. Father, we ask you in Jesus' name that you would help us, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that our hearts would burn and that the book of Revelation would not be mysterious to us, but rather we would commit ourselves to understanding your language, your plan, your battle strategy, and that each week as we meet and talk through it and pray through it, this concludes this teaching from The Prayer Room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.